Well, it's the Sunday after Christmas, and I'm trusting all of you had a wonderful holiday, enjoying family and friends. We certainly did that at our house. And I want us to turn right away to the Word of the Lord and look at part of the Christmas story that often gets overlooked, if not completely ignored. We certainly don't see images of it on Christmas cards, nor is it in the nativity scenes that we display. Nonetheless, it's part of the story, and I think it's worth us looking at today. And I will admit to you my intimidation and even attempting to address it this morning because Pastor Des has so magnificently drawn attention to it in the past. He's even declared one of the characters from this part of the story to be his favorite in all of the Bible. And so I'll have to get past all of that. I'm going to share with you my own heart this morning as we look at this passage. So please turn with me to the second chapter of Luke. If you have your Bibles. And we're going to begin with verse 21. Excuse me. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And I encourage you to leave your Bible open and keep looking at it as we go through the passage Keep me honest here and be sure that I'm telling you the truth, what the Word has to say. I really want you to pay close attention as we read through the passage. I I thought about breaking it up into pieces as we go along, but I'm going to read the passage in the whole, but I want you to listen to it very carefully because we're going to address several things from the passage this morning. The shepherds have left the manger scene and returned to their flocks, and we can pick it up at verse 21. If you could put it up. Thank you, Stephen. Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. Then it was time for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy... He must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. For I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. And he is the glory of your people Israel. Well, Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. And then Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, the baby's mother, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, but he will be a joy to many others. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your very soul. Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher. 
and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. Well, believe it or not, this is just as much a part of the Christmas story as the shepherds and the wise men. And yet there are no Christmas carols that I'm aware of that we sing which come from this part of the story. I've yet to see a Christmas card depicting this event. And yet this situation took place, hear me, between the visit of the shepherds and the visit of the wise men. Every time we hear the Christmas story, there is this jump or gap, if you will, from the shepherds to the wise men, though many months lie between those two events. So why, why is there this gap? Why does this jump exist when we are so familiar with every other part of the story that we could tell it almost by memory? Young and old alike could do so. We know every detail of it. And yet these events are jumped over if not ignored. Well, I want to present four reasons why possibly we don't give this part of the story the same emphasis that we give the others because it's part of the Word of God and we need to pay attention to it. Number one, first reason why it may be not as discussed is that it did not take place in Bethlehem. So it's a change of scene and possibly it breaks the continuity of our thought process and we like everything to be tidy and keep everything in Bethlehem. And this did not. This took place in Jerusalem. There were only six miles between the two cities, between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Nevertheless, this change of scene seems to produce almost a mental blockage for us as we tend to jump straight from the shepherds to the wise men and keep all the Christmas story in Bethlehem. However, we must understand as we read this that Jerusalem is part of the story as well. A second reason that possibly these events are skipped over is that they're not, they don't appear to be as dramatic to most folks as the shepherds and the wise men. They're not particularly as sensational as, or as exciting as some of those others. There's no angel in the sky with the pronouncement. There's, there's no star as guided the wise men. We don't see that here. So it's none of the drama that some of these other events have. And we ought to be honest, we are people of drama. We prefer the sensationalism. Media folks will tell you that. If you want to make it interesting and get people's attention, be sure there's some level of sensationalism or, or drama attached to it. And these events are possibly not all that dramatic. There's a third reason why possibly we don't pay much attention to this part of the story. And that is this, that these events are thoroughly Jewish from beginning to end. That which we're going to go through here carefully this morning. They are thoroughly Jewish from beginning to end. And we are Gentiles. And so at best, it will be a great challenge for us to truly grasp the significance and the importance and the value of what these events are And because we're Gentiles. And it may be that deep down in our Gentile minds, I, I hope it's not there, but it could be that there's something that doesn't like to be reminded that Jesus was and is a Jew. That Joseph and Mary were Jewish and that we're talking about a Jewish family. There's even the possibility in some of us that there's some deep-seated anti-Semitic part of us that just doesn't like this part of the story. And that's the third reason why possibly we don't give it quite as much attention. But there's a fourth reason that I think is 
may be the most important or the deepest reason that these events are only truly understood and appreciated by spiritually minded believers. That's the thing that I think we're going to discover the most. The unbeliever can't really make much of this part of the story. It doesn't have much significance to them. The unbeliever likes the story of the shepherds and the wise men and all the drama, but not these events, because these events that we're going to discuss and look at with some level of detail today, they are spiritually discerned. They are spiritually discerned. Now, apart from anything else, these events tell us quite a bit about Joseph and Mary, the parents, and they introduce us primarily to the third group of people who gazed upon the baby Jesus. The shepherds were the first group. The wise men were actually the third group who gazed on the baby as you look at the chronology. But this middle group of people is possibly the most important group of all. And yet they're the ones that we overlook. And the middle group of people that gazed upon the baby is composed of just two people. An old man and an old woman. And I'm going to present to you that possibly this was the most important group who met this baby. Well, with that a bit of introductory background and foundation. Let's look at uh, the passage in more detail. <clears throat> As we go directly to the second chapter of Luke, we encounter these Jewish events taking place. And what we need to understand very clearly is that they were not done because of Jewish custom, but they were done because of the law of God through Moses. It was God's law given through Moses. This is all laid out for us in the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament. And so focus with me, if you will, for just a moment on the importance of what was taking place in this law of Moses and why it was so important to a Jewish family. It has little and for some people no significance for us today, extremely important to this Jewish family. Now, this law, which was very cumbersome, very difficult for people to maintain, if not impossible. It included the Ten Commandments, moral laws, social laws, food laws, purity laws, feasts, sacrifices and offerings, instructions for the priesthood, instruction regarding the tabernacle, and much, much, much more. Now, all of these events, these Jewish events that take place in this passage, have at the back of them a basic conviction that a child is a gift from God. Let me say that again. A child is a gift from God. You may not feel like that today if you got irritated with them on the way to church, but they are precious in God's sight. Young parents, if you are just experiencing a newborn child, that is a gift from God to you. You may be having sleepless nights. You may be having all kinds of issues. You may be going through the shock of realizing that you pretty much have to lay down your life for this new thing that's in your life. That happens to all of us. It's one of the best things that can ever happen to us is that you have to kind of forget a lot about yourself, your desires, because God has given you a precious gift. Your child is a gift from God. And Mary and Joseph, being Jews, were under the law of Moses. And since Jesus was a Jewish baby, he too was under this law of Moses, responsible to this law. Very important that we understand that. And so the first thing that happened was that the father, with any male relatives he could gather in Bethlehem, and there probably were some there at that time, he takes the baby, they would gather, and the baby boy would be circumcised. It's an operation which would shed blood and would be painful. 
And they were doing that, which would happen to every, had happened to every Jewish boy for 2,000 years. Now, what did this operation mean in those days and in that setting? Nowadays, it's performed for all kinds of other reasons, but in those days, it was for religious reasons. What did this little operation mean? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, it branded him as a Jew. Though it was not a public sign, it was a constant reminder to the man himself that he belonged to the people of God. It branded him as a Jew. He would know for the rest of his days. It was an irreversible action. He would know he belonged to the people of God. Number two, it was also a sign of a promise made 2,000 years before and passed down through the male lines from the man to whom the promise was made, and that was Abraham. And since the operation was on the reproductive organ, it was a sign of a, of a promise made to the inherited seed of all the way down the line. And this spoke to a Jew so very deeply of something wonderful in his history. So it was a sign that Jesus was in the line of the promise. And what was this promise of Abraham? That God would give a blessing to the Jews that would spread from them to every family on earth and all of the nations. What a wonderful promise. And that came all the way down the line. And this operation performed on young males was part of securing that. And that promise came down accompanied by the sign, which was the guarantee of the promise to Jesus. And with Jesus, the sign stopped because with Jesus, the blessing came. The third thing that circumcision meant was that it put Jesus under the whole law of Moses. It put him under that law. Every little thing written in the law of Moses, Jesus now had to obey. And a boy who was circumcised by that act is responsible for keeping every law of Moses in every little detail. Well, of course, a baby can't keep laws. So the Jewish law was that until the age of 12, the father and mother were responsible under the law for seeing that every little piece of it was kept in that boy's life. And then at the age of 12, they would have to take him and present him to the synagogue or the temple and from then on, he was responsible himself. And those of you who have 12-year-old boys are probably shudder at the fact that your 12-year-old boy would be responsible for himself from that point on. Can I get an amen on that? A little nervous amen, but that's okay. But now in connecting these three things, let me remind you what we said, that Jesus was and is a Jew. And that should have an effect on every Jewish person that you meet. Number two, remember that Jesus inherited the promise of Abraham. And if you want the promise of the blessing to Abraham, you must come right on down the line to Jesus and meet Jesus. And when you get to know him, you will receive the promise and the blessing of Abraham. And number three, remember that Jesus was under the law, hear me, hear me, hear me, so that he could lift it from off of our shoulders. To fully grasp all that I'm telling you now, you need to have a good study in the book of Galatians. In fact, I'm going to ask you if you would be so kind. I hope you go home this afternoon and read the book of Galatians. Six little short chapters. What we're going to discuss now will mean have much more impact for you when you know something about the book of Galatians. I know Pastor Shaler has been taking the youth through quite an extensive study of that book on Wednesday nights. I've sat in on some of the sessions. That book of Galatians is all about circumcision and all about the burden of the law. And when you read the law of Moses, it's literally pages and pages and pages, dozens and dozens of things that you must do and dozens and dozens of things that you must not do. A very complicated and encumbered way of life. And if you or I had to try to keep all those laws, it would be incredibly burdensome for us who would even try to attempt it. 
But Jesus, by being circumcised, got under the law, born under the law, to lift it off of our backs. Circumcision, hear me, was absolutely essential to lift the the law off the backs of people. And he was the only man, Jesus was the only man who kept every single precept of the Mosaic law and then smashed its curse by taking the curse of the law on his own shoulders and they're lifting it off of the burden of you and me. Now why is it today that we are not under the law of Moses? Why is it that today you and I can go home and eat pretty much anything that we would like to eat, things that were forbidden in the law of Moses? Why is it that you can feel free to bring young males into this world without being circumcised? Why is it that you can feel free to do many things that that the Jews were forbidden to do? Why is it that we are allowed to eat meat that is not kosher? I'll tell you why. It's because Jesus was circumcised and then crucified. That's why. And here's what I'm saying. I hope you go home and read Galatians. The cross began when Jesus was circumcised. It was the beginning of the cross for Jesus. Because that little operation put him under the law, and he could only lift the law from off our shoulders and the burden that the law's precepts demanded by getting under it, and he did so by being circumcised. Let me say it reverently like this. This was the first occasion on which the Redeemer's blood was shed. And if we do not see, church, the connection between his circumcision and the shedding of the Savior's blood at that point and the cross 33 years later and the shedding of his blood at that point, then we've missed the most vital part of the Christmas story. He was getting under the law, being placed under the law to lift it off of our shoulders to be the end of the law to those who believed on his name. Now, it's always necessary that we're very careful when we're talking like this and we come to a point like this because some might interpret it as, well, so it doesn't matter now how I, how I live. I can live any way that I, I want to. I'm no longer under all the law of Moses. I no longer have to be responsible for all of those do's and don'ts. Christ has abolished that law. But I want to remind you of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, that we have been called to live in freedom, but that is not permission to use that freedom to satisfy our own sinful nature. Instead, we are to use our freedom to serve one another in love. That's what Paul says to us. We are now under the law of Christ. And since he has been crucified for us and we are under his law alone, that law is the law of love. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His circumcision was the beginning of setting us free. So that now... Instead of the law of Moses being our standard, the cross becomes our standard of life. We no longer are bound to that because of what Jesus did right from the time he entered into the world. That's what the circumcision of Christ says to me. And on the eighth day of our Lord's life, Joseph took his little boy and he said, His name shall be Jesus. Isn't it significant that that's the first point at which his name is mentioned after his birth? I don't think the shepherds were told his name. But at this point when he was circumcised, which was the beginning of setting people free from the law, his name is Jesus is what was pronounced. For he shall save his people from their sin. No longer will they be bound to the law because Christ has come. Oh, church, do you get this this morning? We are free today because of what Jesus has done. 
This ought to give us new reason to appreciate the Christmas season. New reason to appreciate what God has done for us. Yes, he came as the babe in the manger and brought us love, and we love all those, those stories, but we need to understand the true significance of his coming. He came to break the burden off of our backs of the law of Moses. We are no longer bound to that, to be in right relationship with God. We now are under the law of Christ, which has set us free. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the church said, hallelujah. Now we move on to the next thing that happened in this passage, if you're following with me, some 32 days later. Joseph and Mary packed up their few belongings, wrapped Jesus up in something in which he could travel, and set out to travel six miles to Jerusalem. So why did they go? Well, because they had circumcised him, they now had to do everything that the law of Moses demanded. And the law of Moses said that a mother had to go to God on the 40th day after bearing a son, and she had to go through certain rites of purification and offer certain sacrifices and be clean. I don't know why it was this way. If she had given birth to a girl, it would be 80 days. If it's a boy, it's 40 days. If you figure out why, you let me know. My research didn't tell me. But 40 days, she's going to offer certain rites of purification. And until she had done that, she was not allowed to enter the synagogue. She was not allowed to be part of worship until she had done that. All of this was in the law of Moses, and it had to be done. So before the wise men came, Mary and Joseph set off to travel the six miles to Jerusalem, and they went for the rites of purification. Now listen, if the child who first opened the womb was a boy, then that boy belonged to God. If the first child that was born to a woman was a boy, then that boy belonged to God. Every male that opened the womb, the first child was God's and must be given to God completely. In the same way as when a Jew received his wages, the first tenth belonged completely to the Lord. We call it a tithe. In that same way, the first son belonged completely to the Lord. God has a right to the first things in our life. You didn't hear me. I said God has a right to the first things in our life. Some of you got your mute button on and you don't want to hear all this. You don't want to hear about tithing. No more than what I want to talk about it. But the truth is, it's the law of the Lord for us. And, we, and it's, God wants our first thing. When you first get up in the morning, what ought to come out of your mouth, of, the lips off of your lips is praise to Jesus. It's the first thing. He wants the firsts. That's what he's asked for. He comes first. And if a boy comes first, the boy is God's. When that law was first made, it meant that at the age of 12, the boy was taken to the tabernacle and he would be made a priest. And the parents only brought him up for the first 12 years, and then they must hand him over to the service of the Lord at age 12. Later, when the Levites alone were priests, the mother and the father had to take the baby to the temple and present him to the Lord and recognize that he was their firstborn, and then they had, they had to buy him back, to pay money, to buy him back for themselves. And they paid five shekels to redeem their firstborn. This was the Jewish law, and they went up to Jerusalem. Mary and Joseph did because the first child was a boy that had opened the mother's womb, and so they took that little boy and they presented him to the Lord. But in this case, they did not buy him back. They didn't say they wanted him back. They did not produce five shekels. They said, Lord, this is your boy, which meant that at the age of 12, you can have him completely. Now, what is interesting, stay with me here, What's interesting to note is that 12 years later, they were surprised, Mary and Joseph were surprised when he had stayed, in, when Christ had stayed in the temple. 
And when they found him, what they do? They scolded him and said, where have you been? We've been looking everywhere for you. How quickly we forget that which we have promised to God. Mary and Joseph did. They had taken him to, to the temple, given him to God completely. And when he reached that age, they were somehow surprised that now he belonged completely to God. So the question to you and me on that today is this. Have you dedicated something to God that you've forgotten about? Maybe you, maybe you offered your house. You moved into a new home. You were thankful that God blessed you with a new home. And you dedicated it to God. Is it still God's? Maybe you gave your life to the Lord. Is it still God's? How quickly we forget that which we have offered to God. Examine your own heart. Is there something in your own life that you have offered to God, but somehow over the years you've either forgotten or you've taken it back? How quickly we forget what we give to God. So the parents presented him to the Lord in the temple. One other thing that is interesting to me at this point is that Mary, for her purification, offered two little turtle doves or two little pigeons. An ordinary family of average income had to present a lamb a very poor family was allowed to present or pay only two turtle doves or two pigeons. And technically, this was actually had a name for it. It was called the offering of the poor. The offering of the poor. That tells us that Mary and Joseph were very poor and all they could afford were a couple of little birds. So what does this tell us about the Lord? Because it says something pretty profound to me about the Lord. It tells us that God would rather have parents with little money who will do for a child what God wants to have done than to put a child in the home where there is everything that money can buy, but the parents do not do what God requires. You're enjoying this this morning, I can tell. I'm telling you the truth. Look what God chose. He could have put that child in any home on the planet. Look what he chose. And he chose to put that child in a very, very poor home. And before we go on from this point, and I, I, I didn't know until right before the service that Stephanie was going to sing, certainly the song that she sang, but we must all be washed in the blood. Before we go on from this point, let's take note how much blood is involved in this story. Maybe this is why this part of the Christmas story receives so little attention. There's blood at the circumcision of Jesus. There's the blood of Mary that rendered her unclean. And there's the blood of the two pigeons or turtle doves that were offered as a sacrifice for their mother. We will never fully understand the story, the wonderful story of our salvation, if we miss out on the word blood. There are lots of churches today who think that's not cool to talk about. I don't care if it's cool or not. It's the word of God, and it is precious to us, church. It's the scarlet red that, the thread that runs all the way through Scripture. It's there all the way through, starting when Abel brought his sacrifice in blood, all the way through to the very end in Revelation, when it says, these are they who have come out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. It's the blood of Jesus shed for the sins of the world that makes it possible for us today to be redeemed, for us to even be able to gather today for worship in this house. It's the blood of Jesus that unites us together. And can you say amen to that, church? Mary and Joseph and the baby were in the temple in Jerusalem and coming up to them were these two old people. The second group 
to see the newborn king. First were the shepherds, and then these two older people in the temple, and third the wise men. But there were two great differences between the other two groups, the first and the third, and this pair of folks. One was that the baby was brought to them. They didn't make the journey to the baby. The baby was brought to them. The other difference is that they didn't have the kind of guidance that the others had. Shepherds had the angelic host, the angel in the sky saying, Going to go to Bethlehem and see. The wise men had the star in the sky that guided them to Bethlehem. But with this old man and this old woman, no angel, no star, but what they did have was the Holy Spirit in their hearts that said, this is he. And I think you and I can identify with Simeon and Anna because at least I've not seen an angel in the sky. You may have, I've not. We've not been guided by a star. But the Holy Spirit who said to Simeon and Anna, this is Jesus, is the same Holy Spirit that said to me, this is him, follow him. It's the same Holy Spirit that's spoken to you the same Holy Spirit that's convicted you of your sin and said, this is Jesus. Meet Jesus. Let him redeem you. Let him save you from your sins. This is how we receive the confirmation today that he is indeed the Savior of the world. The Holy Spirit within us, and I'm so glad the Holy Spirit dwells within. The Holy Spirit within us says, that boy, that man, that crucified body, that risen Lord, that's the Savior of the world. And our hearts resonate with that because of the Holy Spirit that dwells within and it's the Holy Spirit that guides us to that understanding just as he guided Simeon and Anna. Let's talk about Simeon. And then we'll speak about Anna and then we'll close. There are three things that are said about him which tell us that even though he wouldn't have realized it, he knew the Trinity. He was righteous and devout toward God. He was looking for the Christ, the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. The whole trinity was in this old man. He knew God, righteous and devout. He knew about Christ, though he'd never met him. And he had the Holy Spirit upon him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all working together in the minds of these two old people. And now the most exciting thing about Simeon is that he was the only Jew, as far as we know, who knew when the Messiah would come. Others may have guessed, as is still the practice of some today, but nobody knew. But one day this old man was worshiping God and the Holy Spirit came upon him and he knew, he knew that it was going to be in his lifetime that he would meet Jesus. Can you imagine the excitement of that knowledge? Can you imagine what it would be like to have that understanding, have the Holy Spirit come upon you in such a way, be so overpowered that you knew that you knew that you knew you would meet the Christ before you died? Now, we know that Jesus is coming back to earth again. Don't you hope it's going to be in your lifetime? When I looked at the children on Tuesday evening at the Christmas Eve service when Pastor Brenda was reading them the Christmas story, the thought occurred to me, you know, the Lord could come back. Of course, he can come back anytime he wants. And only the Father knows. But wouldn't it be wonderful if he came back in our lifetime? But I looked at those children seating right around, seating right around here, and I thought, you know what, Lord? It's very possible that you'll still come back. The second coming of the Lord will be during their lifetime. How many of you believe the Lord is coming back to earth again? We do not know the day or the hour. It's not ours to know. But we do know this. The Lord is coming back to redeem his bride. So the excitement in Simeon must have been great as he had the assurance that he would see the Lord's Christ, 
the coming of the Messiah. And he not only knew when the Messiah would appear, he knew where he would appear. Because the Holy Spirit said to him one day as he got up in the morning, he was doing his morning prayer, Simeon, get to the temple. I bet he couldn't get there quick enough. There's part of me that wants to believe, and I'm putting my own here. Part of me that wants to believe, he knew exactly what was happening because he had been waiting for so long. And the Holy Spirit had come upon and given him and given him this information. Get to the temple today. And what did he expect to see? Do you think when he got there, he looked up into the sky, expected to see some great figure floating down from the clouds? He could have. He came to the temple court. He looked all around. He might have looked into the pinnacle of the temple to see if there was some magnificent figure there coming in. What was his expectation? But when he looked around, what he saw was this. A poor peasant man and his simple little wife and a baby. Just imagine with me for one moment what's going on in his heart, what he must have felt. Expectation, full of expectation, full of anticipation of what's going to happen. Surely he had conjured something up in his mind of what this moment was going to be. Haven't you done that? I have. Figured it all out ahead of time. And yet, in a way that was so unassuming, that would have surprised any of us. He's standing there and he sees walking toward him a peasant, a poor peasant man. Simple little wife and a baby. But something in his heart. <laughs> I'm so glad the Spirit dwells within. Something in his heart said, that's him. That's the one you've been waiting for. There still could have been some battle in his heart saying, oh, but Lord, that's just a baby. I'm looking for the Christ. But the Holy Spirit must have said, that is the Christ. And so Simeon took the baby in his arms, which may have well have surprised the parents. And he, then he gushed out those famous words in magnificent praise. And that actually has a name for us today. It's called in Latin, the nunc domitus. He said, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. For I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. And he is the glory of your people Israel. What has he seen? He's only seen a little baby, nothing more. But what faith he must have had. Because that's all he wants to see. I think I might have been selfish enough to say, Lord, could I just live 20 more years? Just give me 20 more years. I want to see what happens with this baby when he grows up. Please, let me just live 20 more years. Can I not live with him? I've waited so long. But no, Simeon said, I've seen it all. Now that church is faith. He didn't ask to see anything more than just the beginning. That's all. He knew that if you've seen the beginning of something and it's of God, it will happen. Whether you see the rest of it or not. When you see the beginning of something, if it's of God, it will happen. Whether or not you are allowed to see the rest of it. Because he who has begun a good work will complete it. 
It's so wonderful to see elderly people who can say, I I rejoice to see the beginning of things in God that I know will go on after I'm gone. I can rejoice in the future even though I won't even be here to see it. That's faith. That's not just faith. That's magnificent faith. I can't help but think of our school of ministry. It's in its infancy. And yet there are people who are making generous contributions to help us get it fully established who may or may not be here to see it when it's fully what it is in fully what God has designed it to be. It takes faith to do that. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Abraham, Moses, Elijah, all the heroes of faith of old, they didn't live to see the day of Christ, but they rejoiced in God's unfolding purpose. As we get older, we should not regret that we're not going to live to see all these things. We should rejoice that we've seen the beginning of the purposes of God. Lord, I'm ready to go now. I've seen the beginning. It's magnificent, and I have every confidence that you who have begun the work will complete it. How unselfish, how unselfish Simeon was here. He called himself thy servant. It was thy salvation. It was thy people. It was all God's. There was no me, no my, no mine. It's all thine. Now, that's the positive side of this encounter with Simeon. But then his visage changed as he turned to the parents from gladness to sadness. He looked at this young couple and he blessed them. I don't, I don't know how. He may have simply said, God bless you, dear folks. Who knows? But it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. You know this little baby. I, I can see what's going to happen. Do you think everyone will be thrilled that he's come? Do you think that when he reveals the thoughts of many hearts, that they're going to be thrilled and excited? No. This child will split our nation down the middle. Some Jews will rise as they accept him. Others will fall as they reject him. Some will live on a higher plane than they've ever lived before because of this baby. And some will sink to the depths of shame and degradation because of this child. Because wherever Jesus comes, people either rise or fall. You do not stay the same. You either rise to new heights or you rebel and you reject and you go down. And it's still true today. It's true for every person in this room, starting with me all the way to the back of the balcony. We will either rise or fall based upon how we react to the Lord Jesus. How will we respond to him? Some of you are sitting in this room today with hearts wide open to the Lord. Almost gushing your praise and your worship to him today. Full of gratitude for what God has done. Others are sitting in this room full of rebellion, resentment, bitterness. You will fall. That's exactly what he's saying is is going to happen when he comes. Therefore, he said this baby will be spoken against. Some will say, let this baby be gone. Let's kill this man. Let's get rid of him. So he turned to the mother and he said, and you, dear mother, a sword will pierce your own heart. And the shadow of the cross falls again across this baby. Christmas has the shadow of the cross all over it. The blood, the prediction of sorrow. And 33 years later, Mary would be a widow watching her firstborn son cruelly put to death in a shameful manner. And the sword. And now, into the scene comes a dear old lady of 84. 
We say old, although today we would simply say elderly. But in those days, I'm told the average life expectancy was 29. I checked it yesterday. It's now 81 for women and 76 for men. So a lady of 84 in those days would be absolutely amazing. And this dear old lady had seen tragedy all of her life on three levels. She saw it at the family level because she was only married seven years when her husband passed away and she became a widow. She saw tragedy at the family level. She had seen tragedy at her tribal level. So I was asking you to pay close attention to when we read the scripture earlier. She was of the tribe of Asher, which was one of the ten lost tribes taken to Assyria. And Anna was one of the few survivors or her ancestors of a tribe that had been almost completely obliterated. She saw tragedy at the family level, at the tribal level, and she had seen tragedy at the national level. She had lived in Jerusalem at a time when one civil war after another had taken place. Read the history of what happened in Jerusalem the 84 years before Christ was born. And she had seen mostly bloodshed all of her life. This dear widow had seen so much tragedy, and what did she do about it? Did she say, well, how can there be a God of love? How can that happen? Why would a God of love allow me to be exposed to all of this? How can I believe in God with so much personal tragedy? Do you know what's happened to me? Do you know what my eyes have seen? No. She said, there's something I can do about this. There's something I can do about all the tragedy that I've seen. I can go and pray. I can go and fast. And I can go and worship. And so night and day she spent in the temple crying out to the Lord... That's the best thing she could do with her sorrow. She gave herself to prayer. She came into the temple at that very moment and saw the baby, and she knew also God had answered her prayer. She'd been praying for 60 years for God to do something. Now she goes all around the temple talking to anyone who listened to her, who wanted to see Jerusalem redeemed. And she told them that the baby had been born. Well, that's the story of Simeon and Anna part of the Christmas story that we sadly leave out so often. No Christmas carols about them. No Christmas hymns that are part of our culture. As we look at Simeon holding the baby in his arms, really what we're seeing is the Old Testament holding the New Testament. We see the finest representatives of the law of Moses introducing the one who came with grace and truth. We see the old passing into the new, fulfilling himself in many ways. And on this Sunday, the last Sunday of 2013, a year that none of us can have again, a year that has brought joy and sorrow, a year that has been easy at times and very difficult at others, a year that we might not want to live again even if we could. This old year is about to be passed on to a new year. And even if we don't live to see the total fulfillment of God's plan and purpose for his, be for his people on earth, we've seen the beginning. And we can say to the Lord that we're ready to go because we have seen thy salvation. I have seen the glory of your people Israel. I've seen the light for revelation to the Gentiles. I've seen it all. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the word today.